0: My name is Andrew Philbeck. I am in charge of home groups here, and I'm excited to be here with you today as we uh, continue on in our new Room for Doubt series. Hopefully, many of you or most of you were here last weekend when we kind of launched this. It was a uh, unique weekend here because, for one thing, we had a special guest with us. Uh, Mark Middleberg was here. He's a Christian apologist, a Christian author, a Christian speaker, and he Uh, Did a really good job. If you missed last weekend's service, I want to encourage you to get online and check it out as soon as you can. Uh, A couple of reasons I say that. One, I think that Mark just had some really good things to say about doubt and about the importance of asking questions at the beginning of our time together. But uh, if you were here with us, you know that what we did most of the time during all of the services was Mark answered questions that people from church asked. It was a really interesting experience and you know like I said I recommend you checking that out if you haven't done so already. Well I'm really excited about this series and one of the reasons I'm excited about it is that I believe everyone experiences doubts on some level and at some time in their lives. I don't know if you agree with me on that. I don't know if Uh, That makes you feel uncomfortable for me to stand up here and say that, but it's just what I believe. Everyone experiences doubt on some level and at some time in their lives. In his book, Faith and Doubt, Christian author John Ortberg starts off the introduction with these words. He says, I will tell you my secret. I have doubts. I've spent my life studying and thinking and reading and teaching about God. I grew up in the church. I went to a faith-based college and then to seminary. I walked the straight and narrow. I never sowed any wild oats. And I have doubts. And if you were here last week, you know that Mark highlighted this truth as well, uh, but not with current Christian teachers. You know, he talked about the fact that he believes all of us experience doubt, but he didn't do it by pointing at anyone um, in our modern day and age. He pointed at a few examples from Scripture, and I think that two of them uh, really speak to the truth that anyone, no matter who you are, can experience doubt. And I say that because one of his examples was the Apostle Thomas. And if you've grown up in the church, then you know already that Thomas is synonymous with doubt, which is why we call him Doubting Thomas. You know, here's a man who was close friends with Jesus. He traveled with Jesus. He was privy to some special teachings that Jesus had that, you know, the crowds Uh, Did not hear. He was a witness to many of the miracles that Jesus performed. And yet all of these things did not prevent him from experiencing doubt and from having questions in his life. And I like the other example because it feels like you couldn't be uh, farther removed from the Apostle Thomas when you talk about John the Baptist. You know, he's this wild man uh, living alone in the desert, yelling at religious leaders, eating insects, baptizing people. And, you know, even though when he saw Jesus, he said the words, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Later in his life, when he was in prison, he started to have doubts. What if, what if I was wrong? What if Jesus really isn't the Messiah? What if things aren't the way that I thought they were? He actually sends some of his friends to talk to Jesus about this. And the reason I want to spend a few moments talking about this with you today is because I think that many people in the church are afraid of the word doubt. You know, I've gotten the chance to read a lot of stuff by Mark Middleburg in preparation, you know, not just for this message, but for the entire series that we're in as well. And one of the things that he stresses, and I really appreciate this, is he says that, you know, lots of times people in the church, they think that doubt is the opposite of faith. And so they're afraid of doubt because what they're afraid of is if they admit that they have doubts, what they think they're doing is admitting that they do not have faith. But what Mark says in his writing is that uh, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. He says doubting is having questions, being you know indecisive over an issue. It's where we're hung up between certainty and uncertainty. And that's not the same thing as refusing to believe something. It simply means that we have questions or concerns about our faith. And again, I don't know how this makes you feel today, but if I met someone who never had any questions about their faith, never had any questions about, you know, the things that they read in the Bible, never had any questions about anything that God did or allowed to happen, I honestly don't know how I would feel about that person. And I'm not trying to sound harsh this morning. I'm not trying to to downplay the reality of faith in our lives and, and, you know, honestly, the blessing that it is to have faith in God. But I've grown up in church my whole life, like many of you probably have. And you know what? I have lots of questions. I have lots of questions about some of the stuff that I read in the Bible. I have lots of questions about what goes on in our world. I have lots of questions about what I see people go through in their daily lives. When we have doubts, when we have genuine questions that force us to seek God's answers, and, you know, when we kind of embrace that and dive in and read things that challenge our faith, what it gives us the opportunity to do is it gives us the opportunity to to grow and to come out even stronger on the other side. I mean, think about this for a moment. What kind of God would we have If everything that he did just made perfect sense to us all the time, if we never disagreed with him or he never disagreed with us, maybe that's the better way to say it. What kind of God would we have if he was never mysterious or beyond us or above us? Does that sound like a big God? Does that sound like a God that requires our faith and our trust? Does that sound like a God that is worthy of our worship? And this all leads us into everything that we're going to be talking about in our series as we try to answer the, these, these questions that we're going to uh, address. And, you know, one of the things my dad talked about last week, you know, we're trying to, to understand the reality of what it's like to live in the tension in our world and, and also to grow in our own understanding as believers, and this morning, we're starting at the beginning, which, which is to say that I don't think we can really uh, spend time talking about, you know, the, the book that God wrote or the plan uh, for salvation that God has or whether or not Jesus was God's son before we address the question, does God really exist? Does God really exist? And before I start to dig into any of this, today, I just want to let you know that this was a really interesting topic for me to deal with this week. It was an interesting question for me to have and to study and to, to, to think about. And the reason I say that is because, honestly, I've never doubted whether or not God exists. That's probably what you would expect someone in my position to say, someone whose father is a pastor, someone who grew up in the church, went to Bible college, and who now works in a church. But on the other hand, like I already said, I have plenty of questions about God. I have plenty of questions about how he works and what he allows and what he doesn't allow. And to be honest, you know, my list goes beyond just the things that we're going to cover in this series. And my guess is you have a list like that too, And I don't want to stand up here either and give you the wrong impression, you know, because sometimes I think we try to hide uh, how we really feel. We say, well, I just have questions. It's not a big deal. I just have a concern that I want to find out more information about. So what I want you to understand this morning is, yeah, I have questions. But what that means is that there are things that I struggle with. And the reason I struggle with these things is because my father is a pastor, because I grew up in the church, because I went to Bible college, and because I work at a church. And I say that because I believe in a God who is more than just, you know, the man upstairs. But the living and active God that we read about in Scripture, the God who is at work today in your life, the God who is at work today in my life right now. And because I believe these things to be true about God, sometimes I look around at the world and I think, I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why you're letting this happen. And I know for some people, whether they've grown up in church or not, they grapple with the same questions and issues that I do, but they don't do it because they're trying to make sense of a God that they believe in. They do it because they look around at the world and they think, if this is the way things are, how how can I believe that there is a God? My guess is that many of you here this morning are like me. You believe in God, the existence of God is not something that you doubt. And maybe it comes down more to how he works than whether or not he is actually there. But I would be willing to bet that you know people who aren't quite as sure as you are that God is really there. And I would honestly be willing to bet that there are probably some people here who aren't quite as sure as you are that God is really there. And so it's important for us to spend time talking about this so that we can grow in our own faith and so that we can grow in our own understanding and so that when the opportunity comes, we might even be able to help someone else grow in theirs. And I want to make sure you understand me when I say that. When I say this, I'm not talking about attacking someone or proving someone wrong. I'm not talking about discovering some kind of magic bullet that allows you to win every debate you might ever find yourself in. I mean answering questions and being better, to, uh, better able to explain some of the things that we believe. You know, what, what I'm talking to you about today and really what we're talking about in this entire series, it's not, you know, ammunition for you to unload on that uh, unbelieving family member that you always have to deal with over the holidays. I realize that Thanksgiving is going to be here before we know it, but that's not what our goal is. Our goal is to meet people where they are. And before we can do that, we need to realize where we are. And this is the best place to start. So, this maybe seemingly simple question is where we're going to begin our study. And it's what you and I are going to get to talk about this morning. And the question of whether or not God is real is certainly not a new one. How many of you have ever heard this statement before from the late Carl Sagan? The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. That's something that I heard. I don't remember where. Honestly, I don't remember why or how, any of that stuff. But when I was reading material, when I was preparing for all of this, I came across that. And I was like, I've heard that before. My guess is that many of you have as well. It's from uh, his book and from his television show called Cosmos. More recently, Richard Dawkins declares this in his book, The God Delusion, He says, the factual premise of religion, what he calls the God hypothesis, is untenable. God almost certainly does not exist. Now, if you're like me, what jumps out at you from that quote is not his assertion that God does not exist, but the word almost that he puts in front of it. So this is what we're going to do. And listen... This is not a typical sermon. If you're a member or a long-time attender, you have probably already guessed that by now. Uh, but if you're not, if this is your first time here, if it's, you know, uh, just the first time back in a while, uh, this is not a typical sermon. What we typically do is, is teach through the Bible. In fact, right now we are nearing the end of a study of Matthew's gospel. And if you've been with us since the beginning, then you know that it's been a great and a long journey But we're getting close to the end. But one of the reasons I want to talk to you about the fact that this is not a typical uh, sermon is because, and I think that you know this, at least I hope you know this, you know if someone comes up to you and, and they say, why do you believe in God? Why do you believe that God exists? And your answer is the Bible says so. That's not going to hold a lot of weight with them. I mean, yeah, sure, I wish it did. I'm sure you wish it did, but that's just not the truth. And if that's the only thing that any of us can ever point to about why we believe that God exists, then I would honestly say we're probably not trying to meet people where they are. So then we ask, well, what else? What else can we point to? What else can we talk about that, you know, may give us evidence of God, a creator God. And so what I'm going to do for the rest of our time here today is to talk about three things, three points that we can uh, look at to help us have a better understanding of why we can believe God exists. So if you're taking notes, write this down next to number one. The beginning points us to God. The beginning points us to God. And again, when I say this, I'm not talking about Genesis 1, One, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I love that verse. I believe that verse. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a branch of science called cosmology, which is the study of the origin, structure, and development of the physical universe. If you've ever read through or studied any kind of apologetics material, which is, you know, just material to help Christians uh, defend, but also, I think, honestly, better understand their faith and what they believe in, then you've probably heard of something called the cosmological argument. And that's what this is. And there are three things underneath point number one that I want to highlight about this for you today. But at the same time, uh, I want you to understand that while My goal is to make this message as valuable and as beneficial for you as possible. Uh, Please understand that what I'm going to be talking about today is not nearly as extensive or in-depth as it could be. And honestly, I don't feel bad about that. I don't feel bad about that because of the time that we have together, but I also don't feel bad about that because I believe we, uh, as believers, have the opportunity and I would even say the responsibility to dive into this at least on some level, on our own, if we want to take personal responsibility for what we believe in, we need to take advantage of the opportunities that we have and the resources that we have. And so while I think that what we're going to talk about is valuable, please understand that it's not all that there is. So the first thing understand, uh, excuse me, the first thing, under point number one, the beginning points us to God is this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. This is just the understanding that things don't just pop into existence. You know, science itself operates on the principle, everything that begins requires a cause. Einstein once said, the scientist is possessed by a sense of the universal causation. And because I wanted to try and make things as simple as possible, I just said, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Now, of course, there is a question or an objection to this, and it says, well, if everything needs a cause, then who or what caused God? And I think that's a fair question. And two things come to my mind when I I think about that. One, that question still doesn't answer where everything else would have come from if there is no God, which I realize doesn't solve anything, but I think it highlights the the reality that whether you believe in God or not, there are questions that need to be asked and dealt with. The second thing is, is, is this. The argument does not claim that everything needs a cause, only everything that has a beginning. And since we understand God as eternal, having no beginning and no end, then we understand that he needs no cause. But we don't just stop there either because then... A fair question simply becomes, or a statement simply becomes, well, then the universe is eternal. You know, just like the quote that I shared a moment ago from Carl Sagan, the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. So what about that? So the second thing under point number one is this, the universe began to exist. The universe began to exist. Almost the entire scientific community acknowledges this fact. Cosmologists refer to this as the Big Bang. The late Stephen Hawking summed it up like this, Almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. And as Christians, you know, we have a tendency to run from this, to run from the Big Bang. And I understand that. But what if science is simply pointing to the very same event that I just read from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? The beginning of it all. What if that's what we're talking about? So where are we going with this? What's the point of all this? Well, if whatever begins to exist has a cause and the universe began to exist, then the universe has a cause. That's where we're going with all of this. And from a Christian point of view, we see that all this sounds like a description of what we call creation ex nihilo, or creation out of nothing. You know, one of the things that that we understand about our universe is the fact that it is expanding. And I'm not going to go into great depth this morning about what that means uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that, uh, you know, like I said, I think that we all have a responsibility to dig into this stuff on our own. But this is significant because for years people either just believed or assumed that the universe had to be eternal. But the fact that we know that the universe is expanding, uh, that evidence for an expanding universe is also evidence for it being created at a single point in time. And we say that this points to a creator, that this points to God. The beginning points to God. So that's number one. If you're taking notes, you can write this down next to number two. The fine-tuning points to God. The fine-tuning points to God. I'm not what you would call an outdoorsy person. Um, I don't go hunting. I don't go fishing. I did some of that stuff when I was younger, when I lived in Oklahoma, but it's not anything that I really kept up with, but one of the things that I do enjoy uh, doing is going on hikes, and this all really started when I was in college, when I was uh, going, at the time it was Johnson Bible College, now it's Johnson University, but when I was going to college in eastern Tennessee, and me and my friends would, would go up into the Smoky Mountains, and we would go rock hopping, that's what we called it. And this was actually one of the first things I ever did with uh, my wife back when I was still in the process of trying to convince her that she should probably marry me someday. So I've got a good association with it because it all worked out. But I've always loved this. I went hiking multiple times in Tennessee. I've gone hiking with my father-in-law down in Kentucky. I've gone to a number of state parks here in Indiana. And one of the things that I love about hiking, that, that I uh, really try to appreciate when I'm outdoors, is, is just the beauty and the complexity of everything that I see all around me. And, and I feel like I really appreciate this when I find myself being, uh, you know, more or less all alone in nature, and one of the reasons that I bring this up is because when we study our planet and when we look into the building blocks of our universe and, you know, the laws and physical constants that govern things, it all appears to be uh, so precisely balanced and fine-tuned uh, to not just, you know, let life exist, but to let life flourish. Mark Middleburg says the laws and constants were dialed in all at once during the Big Bang creation event. And one of the things that we see when we, when we dive into the study of the universe is that there were a number of variables that had to be set exactly the way they are in order for life to exist. One of the things that I, I read this week said that scientists have discovered about 50 of these constants that must be precisely right in order for life to be possible anywhere in the universe. These these constants, just a couple uh, easy examples, things like gravity and the speed of light. And when we look into all of these things, they appear to be so fine-tuned that we have to ask, you know, how did this happen? And the reason we have to ask that is because, you know, if these things were changed by even the most unbelievably small amount, it would have been uh, disastrous, for life everywhere, and one of the things that was really interesting to me is I, I read about this and studied this this week. Uh, you know, the, this the fine-tuned nature of life, what we're calling it this morning, is that this uh, this reality. It's influenced, you know, not just. Christians, but skeptics alike. And I don't know if you'll recognize any of these names or not, but I thought that some of these quotes were really interesting. A man named Fred Hoyle said it like this A super intellect has monkeyed with physics. That's the way he described it because of the way everything just seemed to be so perfectly tuned and balanced. A man named Andrew Flew rejected atheism at age 81 because of this kind of evidence, this, this fine-tuned nature of the world that we live in. He said, I now believe that the universe was brought into, ex- into existence by an infinite intelligence. Then Dr. Paul Davies says this, I cannot believe that our existence in the universe is a mere quirk of fate. We are truly meant to be here. And the reason that I really like all of these is, is because these aren't, you know, necessarily men that believe in a creator God. These aren't Christian scientists who are trying to to back up what they believe in. Uh, these are These are men who have looked at the world around them. They've looked at the evidence. They've looked at the questions that need to be answered, and these are the conclusions that they have come to. I appreciate that. And, you know, like I said, we're not diving deep into all of these individual things. But I I really like what we read about, just briefly about the fine-tuned nature of our world, because what we see here are things that pretty much everyone agrees in when it comes to how our world operates, and what it takes, and, and what needs to be lined up in order for our world to operate the way that it does. And so we see these precise values of things that were independently set and at the same time all work together to bring about life and I believe this points to God to an intelligent designer who made all of this for us I want to read Isaiah chapter 40 verses 25 and 26 and then jump over to verse 28 for you right now it says to whom will you compare me or who is my equal says the Holy One Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting. Is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. Number three, if you're taking notes, our morality points to God. Our morality points to God. And I think this is always an interesting thing to talk about because it's really easy to kind of shrug your shoulders and kind of think, what morality are you talking about? But I think that each of us, I believe that each of us has an internal standard of morality. And I believe what this does is it points to an objective moral truth. The truth that exists above us and outside of us. Not everyone believes this. And believe me, I understand that. And I understand why. And so this means we have to address the question, uh, is there such thing as objective morality? Objective right and wrong. And listen, I believe, like I've said with some of these others before, I believe, obviously, that is a fair question. But I also wonder to myself, you know, why would humans invent a moral code that we can never quite fulfill and then use it to frustrate and condemn ourselves all lifelong? I mean, everyone makes mistakes. Everyone understands that no one is perfect. We are all flawed. But if the idea of morality, if the idea of right and wrong didn't begin outside of us, then why do we feel like this? And I realize that that doesn't answer every question. That doesn't calm every concern or anything like that. But I do think it's an interesting thing to consider. One of the things that I believe points to this objective morality is actually our criticism of others. Now, I know for some of you, you've been waiting for this moment your whole life Waiting for the moment when the pastor on stage tells you that it's okay to be critical of others. That's not what we're talking about, though. To highlight what what I'm I'm talking about, I want to share a quote with you from the book, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. He says, Whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will be complaining it's not fair. It seems then we are forced to believe in a real right and wrong. People may be sometimes mistaken about them just as people sometimes get their sums wrong, but they are not a matter of mere taste and opinion any more than the multiplication table. You know, we might not feel too guilty when we do something like drive over the speed limit. I can remember being in a car with a friend of mine uh, not long after my family moved here the first time when I was still in high school. And I don't remember where we were going, but I was in this car with him, and we were coming up to a stop sign, and I'm pretty sure that he actually accelerated through it rather than slowing down. And I didn't say anything. I just kind of turned my face to look at him because I was in the passenger seat, and he just shrugged and said, those are really just suggestions. (laughs) He didn't feel too guilty about what he had just done. Now, obviously, I understand that some people have a stronger reaction to traffic laws than others, but... You know, what if we look at, what if we talk about other things like physical abuse? What if we talk about sexual abuse against a spouse, against a coworker, against a stranger, against a small child? And we all know it's wrong. And, you know, people will say that morality is created by culture. And again, I understand why people say that. Cultures are different. What is acceptable in one culture is not acceptable in another, not always. And yet at the same time, we can look back at history and we can see the atrocities that people have committed, the, just the things that human beings do to each other. And I believe that we reach a point where we say, you know, culture or no culture, that's just not Right. That's just not okay. And I think once we reach that point, it's healthy to step back and say, you know, well, why do I think that? Why do I think I know what's right and what's wrong for this group of people and at this point in time? And then we think, well, if this applies throughout different periods in history and in different cultures, then what is its source? Where does it come from? I think those are fair and important questions that need to be addressed. I'm gonna bring this section to a close with another passage of scripture from Romans chapter two, verse 15. It says, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. That means we know what's right and wrong and sometimes we feel guilty because we know that we just did something wrong and other times we feel okay because we know that we did what was right. Well, I'm gonna start to wrap things up for us this morning. I know that I've said this a couple of times, but I wanna stress this again. Everything that I've talked to you about, it's just a taste. It's just a, a little bit of what is out there for you to dive into, to read about and to learn from. But at the same time, I don't want to just end our time here by only talking about things like scientific evidence and moral codes, because I think there is something else that we all need to remember when it comes to our belief in God. And what I mean when I say that is we cannot discount our own personal experience either. And I want to explain this. Because this is something only those of us who are followers of Jesus can truly give to someone else. Those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we can look someone in the eye and we can say, one of the reasons that I believe God exists is because he changed my life. And I'm not going to stand up here and pretend like this is some kind of trump card for skeptics or people with questions and doubts. But I'm also not going to stand up here and pretend like a truly changed life is not an incredible witness and testimony either. That it gives us the power to point to a living and active God who loves us and wants us, you know, not just to live, but to live abundantly. And this is why our lives, the way that we live, you know, day in and day out, the way that we talk, the way that we love, the way that we serve, it's all so important because we are a living testimony to the truth we see in God's Word. And listen, I I realize that if someone comes up to you and asks you a question about the existence of God, and you say, Well, I believe in God because He changed my life, that might not change their life. Probably won't. But honestly, it might mean more to them than you pointing to your Bible as proof for God. Someone may not believe anything that they read in Scripture, but if you live a life that glorifies God and a life that puts others in front of yourself and a life that is completely different than anything else we see in the world, they can't deny that. They can't deny that. They may not understand it, And it's not going to answer any of their scientific questions they have about creation or the way our universe is held together or anything like that. But they can't deny that there is something different about you. And if they are curious enough to know what that difference is, then it gives you the opportunity to point to God. Brian can go ahead and come out and get ready for the next part of our service. And John chapter 9, you don't have to turn there, but in John chapter 9, we read this story about Jesus healing a man who was born blind. And after the healing, this man was actually brought to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders at that time, so that they could investigate just what it was that happened, so that they could have all of their questions answered about what had happened, And it's a pretty interesting story because throughout the course of this investigation, even the man's parents are brought before the Pharisees so they can prove, you know, is this really your son? Yes. Was he really born blind? Yes, you know, so he's not just faking it. Yes. And the Pharisees, you know, they don't agree on anything. They can't believe that this happened. They're angry that it happened because they know that it has to do with Jesus. And so at one point, they call this man to them, this man who was healed, And when they're speaking about Jesus, they say these words. They say, we know that this man is a sinner. To which the healed man replies, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Did that change the lives of the Pharisees? Did that cause them to start believing in Jesus as the Son of God? No. But at the same time, they could not deny what had happened to this man. And I want to end with this because, you know, for all of the value that comes from wrestling with our doubts, and and listen, I do believe that there is so much value in, in diving deep and growing in our faith and understanding of how things work. But for all the value that there is in those things, I don't ever want you to forget that the life you live has so much value too. The life you live has so much value when it comes to whether or not someone is willing to even address the question, does God exist? I hope you understand that. I hope you realize that. And I hope you look forward to coming back and being here with us next week as we look at another question in our Room for Doubt series. Would you go ahead and bow with me today? God, thank you so much for the way that you are bigger than our doubts, bigger than our questions. And help us, Lord, to be honest about our doubts and honest about our questions, not just to push them all down inside and never grow in our faith. Because that's what happens when we don't deal with issues that bother us and things that concern us they hold us hostage right where we are and so Lord I pray not just for today but for this entire series and for everyone that's going to be a part of it Lord that you would help us first and foremost to just be honest with ourselves you know what our questions are you know where we need help help us to be honest and to be willing to grow Thank you for loving us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.